Turn with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 4, we're going to continue in the series that we have been working on, uh, mainly on Sunday evenings as we go through uh, Colossians. We're nearing the end of that book. So this morning we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2, or chapter 4, starting at verse 2. And this morning, as you're turning, I want us to start by asking just one question. And that question is, what is the role of prayer in the advance of the gospel? As we think about missions and we think about evangelism, as we think about the gospel going forth, what role does prayer have in that? How should prayer be related to those things? And the reason that I'm asking that question is because the passage that we're dealing with this morning is all about prayer. And it's about prayer and the advance of the gospel, how the gospel is going forth. Now, if you remember from what we've been dealing with on Sunday nights, uh, the church at Colossae is a church that was doing well. It was filled with a lot of young believers, uh, but they were doing well. They were being faithful uh, in following after Christ, they were being faithful to, to who God was, uh, and they were faithful to right teaching and right doctrine. And so Paul has been dealing with uh, encouraging them to guard against false teaching, and then he's turned to encouraging them to live out their Christian life and how they're supposed to do that in obedience and, and how they walk and how they talk and how they interact with one another and their relationships that they have. And now Paul begins to, to turn that. He's kind of had an inward focus where the church is supposed to be dealing with themselves and, and their relationship with God. And now he begins to turn that focus and tell them to have an outward focus. That they are to begin to think about those who are unbelievers in their city, in their country, and those around the world. And so Paul is giving them instructions now on how to pray in regard to the gospel going forth. And so let's listen uh, to what Paul writes here. Colossians chapter 4, beginning at verse 2. He writes, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open uh, up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Now, Obviously, everything that's going on in this passage uh, is about prayer. Paul is commanding Colossians to be involved in praying for him and for the advance of the gospel. But before we really dive into this passage, I, I want us to think about something else. I want us to think for just a minute about the role of prayer in, in the life of the early church. What, what role did prayer have for these early Christians? So take your Bibles and flip back just a, a few books. Uh, go back to, uh, to the book of Acts. Now, I want us just to look. How, how did prayer play a role in their lives, this early church? So flip back to Acts chapter 2. We're going to look through a few passages quickly uh, before we get into Colossians. Uh, so just be ready to flip and move through Acts as we, uh, as we think about this. All right, let's start with Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, uh, we are right after Pentecost. Uh, Peter has gotten up. He has preached. 3,000 people have been saved uh, at that time. And so now we've got this early church that is, that is exponentially grown in just a short amount of time, and we get a picture of what they're doing. So Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 41, and listen to what they were doing. 
So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Do you see what they were doing there? What were they devoting themselves to? They were devoting themselves to four things. They were devoting themselves uh, to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. These new believers, these thousands of new believers that had come together, what do we see them doing? We see them gathering together, and we see them devoting themselves, giving themselves to prayer. I want to tell you that that's one of the things that characterized the early church that we see in Acts. They were devoting themselves to prayer. Now I want you to see what happens. See what happens when the church is devoting themselves to prayer. Look at verse 47. And they were praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. The church gathers together. They devote themselves to these things. They devote themselves to prayer. And what does God do? He adds their number day by day those who are being saved. And what we see as we look in, the, in an Acts about the, this early church, they were constantly praying. And here's the thing that I want you to get. The early church was fueled by prayer. They were fueled by prayer. All right, so get ready to just flip through some of these. All right, flip back to Acts chapter 1, verse 14. The the disciples had gathered together. Jesus had had just risen uh, back up into heaven. And so what do they do when they gather together? Their their leader is gone. He's gone up into heaven. So what are they going to do? And it says in verse 14, uh, they all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. They start by devoting themselves to prayer. Just like what we saw in Acts chapter 2. What did they do? They gathered together and they devoted themselves to prayer. Flip on over to Acts uh, chapter 4. Peter and John had been out proclaiming the gospel. And when they did, they were arrested by the Jewish leaders. And so the Jewish leaders arrested them, took them, and began to debate among themselves, what are we going to do with these folks? They're proclaiming this name. They're causing this trouble. And so the Jewish leaders tell these two men that they are not allowed to proclaim the name of Jesus anymore. If you proclaim his name, you will be arrested. And so they set them free and send uh, Peter and uh, John back to the rest of the church. So what what do they do immediately? Immediately they begin to pray. And I want you to listen to what happens. Uh, Acts chapter 4 verse 29, listen to this. And this this is them praying to God. And they say, and now, Lord, take note of their threats. Grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. So they're threatened, they're arrested, and what do they do? They gather together in prayer, and what is the result of them gathering together in prayer? They preach the name of Christ with boldness, and the gospel continues to go forth. All right, so we kind of see this picture over and over. Flip over to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. All right, beginning in that chapter, we see that uh, James, the brother of John, has been arrested, and he's put to death. And so... They see, the leaders see that this pleased the Jews, and so they go ahead and decide to arrest Peter also. And so they've taken Peter, they've arrested him, they've thrown him in prison. And so what is the response of the church? 
The church goes to God in prayer. Listen to what happens, verse five. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. And then listen what happens in response to that prayer. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, guards in front and the door uh, in front of the door watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared and a light shone in the cell and he struck Peter's side and woke him up saying, get up quickly and his chains fell off his hands. So Peter's thrown in prison. What is the church's response? Church's response is go to God in prayer. And then how does God respond to that? God hears their prayer. He answers their prayer. He does things that only can be explained by his power. The chain's just falling off. Acts chapter 16. Peter and Silas have been thrown in prison. Guards are watching over them. Acts chapter 16, verse 25. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there came a great earthquake. So the foundations of the prison house were shaken. Immediately all the doors were open. Everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now here's, here's your opportunity to respond. What, what, were they, what were Paul and Silas doing when they were in the jail? What does, it say, what does verse 25 say they were doing? They were praying and they were singing hymns. And then how does God respond to that? What does God do in response to that? You're allowed to answer out loud again. What, what does he do? There's an earthquake. The foundations of the, of the prison are shaken. And then it, immediately uh, the doors were opened. Everyone's chains were unfastened. And this jailer who was sitting there watching over all these prisoners who was given the task of watching over them, making sure they didn't escape at the penalty of death to his life, who would have at any point willingly killed his prisoners if they'd escaped, what happens to him? He falls down and asks, how can I be saved? So what we see here is God taking this man who was totally turned against the gospel, ready to kill these men, and totally changes his heart to the point where he says, what do I need to do to be saved? This is in response to the prayers of Paul and Silas. And this is what we see over and over and over again in the life of the early church. The, the early Christians, they gather together, they bow down in prayer before God, and then the gospel advances as the people of God bow down in prayer to him. Here, here's what we see, and I want you to get this. As the church goes forward and as the gospel advances, the fuel for the gospel's advance is the prayer of the people of God. As the church goes forward and the gospel advances, the fuel for the gospel's advance is the prayer of God's people. Romans 1.16 says that the gospel is the power of God and salvation for all who believe. And so if the, power, uh, if the gospel is the power of God for salvation, then we can speak of prayer as the instrument that releases that power. John Piper says this, Not only has God made the accomplishment of his purposes hang on the preaching of the word, 
He has also made the success of that preaching hang on prayer. God's goal to be glorified will not succeed without the powerful proclamation of the gospel. And that gospel will not be proclaimed in power to all the nations without the prevailing, earnest, faith-filled prayers of God's people. This is the awesome place of prayer and the purpose of God for the world. That purpose won't happen without prayer. So prayer must, must take a vital role if the gospel is going to advance in the world today. And so as we look at Colossians, Paul deals with praying for the gospel's advance. And so we're going to answer two questions as we examine this passage. You can go ahead and flip back to Colossians 4. We're done with Acts for right now. Colossians chapter 4, we're dealing with two questions that are going to come up. First question is, how do we pray? And the second question is, what are we to pray for? How do we pray, and then what do we pray for? And so Paul starts out by explaining to us, first, how do we pray? Listen again to verse 2, what he says. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. So how do you pray? You devote yourselves to prayer. All right, we, we know what that means. We know what it means to be devoted to something. It's, uh, it's something that you're constantly engaged in. It's something that, uh, that is, you're consistent in. There's a determination about it. It's not giving up. Uh, it's the opposite of being hit and miss. It's being committed and given and devoted uh, to something. And so Paul says, be devoted to prayer. And, and this is the same picture that we get from Christ about prayer. Flip in your Bibles over to Luke, Luke chapter 18. We'll look at just a couple things in Luke that, that Christ says. <clears throat> Luke chapter 18, uh, starting at verse 1, Jesus is dealing with prayer, and he's explaining how are his uh, followers supposed to pray. Uh, and so this is what he says. Listen to 18, starting at verse 1. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. So we know everything that's coming next is about how they're supposed to pray, how they're supposed to be devoted to it, how they're supposed to be persistent in their prayers. Saying, in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. And there was a widow in that city and she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection for my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I'll give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she's going to wear me out. All right, there's this widow who has some kind of opponent. We don't know what's going on, but somebody is antagonizing her somehow. And she knows her only way to be protected is to go to this judge. And so what she does is she goes to this judge and keeps going to him, asking for some kind of legal protection. And evidently, she does this on and on and on again to the point where she is nagging him constantly, give me some protection. Now this judge has no concern for her. He's not a follower of God. He doesn't care at all. But finally, because she annoys him so much, he finally gives in and says, all right, go ahead. I will make sure that you're taken care of. And Jesus says, you need to pray like that, with that kind of persistence, with that kind of consistency and devotion in your prayers the same way that widow was devoting herself to going to that judge flip now back to Luke chapter 11 Luke chapter 11 
Jesus here gives the, the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, whatever you want to call it. Uh, this is the shortened version that's found here in, uh, in Luke. Uh, so uh, verses 2 through 4, he's dealing with prayer. And he gives that model prayer. But then after that, he gives a, a story that helps to, to illustrate to the disciples how you're supposed to pray. And start, starting at verse 5, listen to the story that Jesus tells. All right, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight, midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside, this guy answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut. My children or I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. And so I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So evidently there's this guy. He's got friends that have come over, some relatives, whatever. And he doesn't have any food. So his only thing that he can do is go to his neighbor and knock on his door and say, will you give me some food? The man answers, no, we're in bed, go away. Knock, knock, knock. Will you give me some food? No, we're in bed, go away. And evidently this keeps going on until finally the man says, enough's enough, take whatever you want so I can go to bed. And, and Jesus says this is a model for how you and I are supposed to pray. That kind of continuing, going to God, devotion to laying our petitions down before him. That kind of determination, that kind of consistency, that kind of over and over again taking the petition to God. Now why is that? Why is it the case that, that Jesus gives these kind of illustrations for how we're supposed to pray? I mean, is God all-knowing? The answer is yes. Yeah, there you go. All right, is God all-powerful? All right, is God all-present everywhere? Yes, so God is all these things, so it should be that we could just say our prayer once and be done because he knows it, he's powerful, he can take care of it, he's everywhere, and so it can all be taken care of. But we keep getting this picture from Paul, from Christ, that we're not supposed to just say uh, this one prayer and then let it be done. We get this picture of a continually persistent going to God in prayer. Why is that? Well, I think, I think it's because this kind of praying, this kind of relying upon God in prayer shows our dependence upon him. It shows that we're not able to do it ourselves. Think about that widow. What hope did she have of herself? There's nothing that she could do. She was entirely dependent upon that judge. And so that's why she kept going to him, because she was dependent on his help. What about that man who didn't have any food? He couldn't depend upon himself. He had to be entirely dependent on the good will of his neighbor. And so that's why he had to keep going to him. And so when we are persistently going forward to God in prayer, laying a petition down before him again and again, that shows that we are not able to do it on our own. It shows that we are ultimately and completely and totally dependent upon him. And God delights, hear this, God delights for us to be 100% dependent upon him and not upon ourselves. You see, when we are praying much, we are showing that we are dependent upon him and can't do it ourselves. When we pray little, 
we're showing that we probably think that we can take care of it on our own and that we can handle it ourselves. Otherwise, we'd be going to him constantly, regularly. So God is pleased when we are devoted to prayer in this kind of way, a continual coming before him, laying down a petition before him. So how do you pray? Turn back to Colossians chapter 4. How do you pray? You pray with... uh, devoting yourselves to prayer, and then also you pray by keeping alert, keeping alert in your prayer. There's a picture here that I think will help us understand what this means. I want you to imagine for just a second a, uh, a sentry who's standing on guard around a, an army camp. And now think about that sentry and what his job is. He, he, he's commanded to make rounds uh, around the camp all night long. That's his job, to make sure that the camp is secure. And so he walks all the way around the camp multiple times every night, keeping alert, watching if there's an enemy that's approaching. And so as time goes on and he's been doing this night after night, it would be really easy for him just to fall in the routine of walking around the camp. And so rather than really keeping his eyes peeled and his mind engaged on what he's supposed to be doing, it'd be really easy to just let his mind wander. You know when you've done something a thousand times before and you can just keep doing it and uh, without thinking about it all? Have you ever been driving down the road and you get to your destination you don't remember how in the world you got there because your mind's just totally somewhere else? It's easy to do that when you're in a routine. We are commanded in prayer to stay alert because I think that it's easy for us to just fall into a routine when we pray. Do you ever find yourself just falling into a routine when you pray where you just mouth the same words over and over, but yet your mind kind of drifts off somewhere else? You have this this set prayer that you pray. God bless this person, bless that person, pray for the people who are sick, God, I pray you'll help them, Uh, pray for the missionaries, God bless the food, amen. Do we ever fall into that? where our prayer is, is kind of just a routine of words that we say, but yet our heart and our mind is not engaged. Paul knows that's a danger that we face. And so he tells them, be persistent in your prayers and be alert in your prayers. Make sure your heart, make sure your mind is engaged. Don't let your mind just wander, but make sure you're engaged in what you're praying because you aren't praying just just any one person. You're praying to the God of the universe. So don't let your prayers be like you're talking to just some guy down the street. Be engaged, be set, be focused, be alert as you're going before him in prayer. So pray with this kind of devotion, this kind of persistence, this kind of, and also an alertness. And then pray with thanksgiving. Listen to what he says. He says that you are to devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it, and also with an attitude of thanksgiving. Pray with thanksgiving because you have the privilege of coming before the throne of God. Pray with thanksgiving for what God has done. Pray with thanksgiving for what God is going to do. And it's, it's an expectant trust and faith that God is going to do what he says he will do. A trust that he is able to answer prayers. All right, do you remember a guy by the name of Jehoshaphat from the Old Testament? Jehoshaphat was a king of Judah. Well, there came a point uh, during Jehoshaphat's reign 
where the city of Jerusalem was under siege. There were two huge armies that were encamped around uh, the city of Jerusalem. You had the Moabites and also the Ammonites, and they had come together to attack the city of Jerusalem. And so they were encamped all around them, and the people were stuck there inside Jerusalem. The gates were, were closed, barred, so that nobody could come in, but that meant they could not go out as well. And these huge armies camped around them. And so they had basically no hope. And so they knew there was a limited amount of time before the food ran out, before the water ran out, and a limited amount of time before those armies came crashing in. And when that happened, they knew what would come. Everybody would be killed. Those that weren't killed would be taken off into slavery. It would be the end for them as they had nothing that they could do. And Jehoshaphat was king when this was going on. And so Jehoshaphat gathers the people together and he prays. And this, this is what he prays. O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hands so that no one can stand against you. O oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us. Nor do we know what to do. But our eyes are on you. Then when he gets done praying, there's a prophet by the name of Jehaziel. And he's, he's standing there in the midst of the assembly. And this prophet Jehaziel stands up and he begins to, to say to all the people, he says, Do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude. For the battle is not yours, but it is God's. You need not fight in this battle. Station yourselves, stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. And so the next morning, the people of Jerusalem gather up together and they go stand right in front of the gates. Stand in front of the gates and they gather everybody together there knowing that the armies are outside facing them and not knowing what is going to happen. But they gather there together and as they open up the gates and as they begin marching outside the gates to meet the armies that are out there, this is what they sing. They go out singing. They sing, give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting. They march out into battle not knowing what they're going to face, but they go out in thanksgiving saying that his loving kindness is everlasting. They go out in trust. They go out in faith and expectant trust that God will protect his people, that God will do what he had said that he is going to do. And when they went out, they went out and saw that all the armies were dead. They were already dead. God had provided the victory. And so this, this is what Paul means when he says to pray with thanksgiving. It's this expectation, this trust that God is in control, that he is going to do what he says he will do, and that he hears the prayers of his children. So pray with thanksgiving. Pray with persistent, unceasing devotion. Be alert in your prayers. This is how. You and I are to pray as children of God, to pray this kind of way. So that, that's the how. So now we're going to get to the what. what. What is it that we're supposed to pray for? What do we pray for? Remember, this is all in the context of the advancement of the gospel. So what, what do we pray for in light of that? Listen to verse 3 and 4 again. Just, just listen to what they say. So praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ which I have also been in prison that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Do you hear the emphasis on the gospel here? 
that's about the gospel, the mystery of Christ going forth. So what are we to pray for? Verse 3, the first thing, we pray for an open door. Pray for an open door for the gospel. All right, when you think about an open door, you think about it in meaning opportunity or, or some kind of access. So be in prayer for an opportunity for the word to go forth, for the mystery, mystery of Christ to be spoken. You see how that's referring to the gospel? Be in, be in prayer uh, that there will be an open door for that to happen. And Paul says, pray that God will open a door to us, open a door for us for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. He's, he's praying it that God will work supernaturally in these circumstances and in the hearts of the people to provide an avenue for the gospel to be proclaimed and for those who hear it to be receptive to it. Now, I want you to remember, Paul was in prison when he was writing this letter. This is, this is one of the prison epistles. That means Paul is, Paul is in chains when this is going on. And, and so he's telling the people there at Colossae, pray that I would have an opportunity where I am in prison to proclaim the gospel. Pray that there would be an open door for that to happen. But, it, but he's not just praying for himself. He's praying for all those who are with him. Look at the end of chapter 4. Do you, do you see all those people who are listed there starting at verse 10? You've got men by the name of uh, Aristarchus, uh, Barnabas' cousin Mark. Um, there's Epaphras who's listed there. There's Luke who's listed there. Paul is saying, look, be in prayer for me. Be in prayer for these guys also that as we do our work, even though I'm in chains right here, and even though some of these are in chains with me or, or whatever it is that they're doing, pray that God will open a door for the gospel to go forth from them. Now, here's, here's what I want us to understand about this. Now, I, I want you to get this. When Paul is telling the church there to pray for an open door, he's praying, he's telling them to pray for something that only God can do. He's telling them to pray for something that only God himself can do. You see, it's only God who can pave the way for the gospel. It is only God who can take a dead heart, as Ephesians 2 says. It's only God who can take someone who's dead in their trespasses and sins and make them alive in Christ. It is only God who can take the person who is dead in their sins and blind to their need for Christ, open their eyes and let them see the majesty of Christ and the depth of their sin and that they need a Savior. It is only God who can do that. It's not some person's clever words and how they present the gospel. It's not some powerful speaker who is able to do that. It is only God himself who is able to open the door for the gospel. So Paul is saying, pray for God to do what only he can do. Pray vigilantly for this. Pray unceasingly for this. Pray for an open door for the gospel. Now, I want you to see there are two truths that come together here. Two truths that come together in this. Number one is the absolute, total sovereignty of God over everything. For the gospel to go forth, it takes God's power to pave the way for the gospel, to do the work in, in the lives of people. It requires God's sovereign power. But here's the second truth. As that happens... God uses human instruments for that. Listen to Romans chapter 10. Paul says, Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
But then how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? You see, these two things must come together. For the gospel to advance, it takes God's sovereign power at work, but it also takes the individual proclaiming uh, the truth of the gospel. And so Paul is calling on the believers there at Colossae at that church, to pray for him, to pray for his companions, pray that that they would be bold, that they would be clear in proclaiming the gospel because it's only something that can happen through God's power. They'll be faithful to proclaim it, but they're resting, they're trusting on what only God can do. And so he says, pray in verse 4 that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. You see, Paul knew Paul knew that there was a danger for him and his companions that they would either be timid in sharing the gospel, afraid to, or that they wouldn't proclaim it accurately. Paul knew that there was that danger, that it wouldn't go out accurately or they would just be afraid to share it. Now, if Paul was concerned about that, if Paul and his companions were concerned that the gospel might not be proclaimed accurately, that they might be timid in it, Do you think that we also need to have that concern, that the gospel be proclaimed accurately, that it goes out in boldness and not in timidity? You see, I think think that we, we could say that there's a tendency to get the gospel wrong today. There's There's a tendency to make the gospel what it really is not. There's a tendency to be timid when it comes to the proclamation of the gospel. I I would say today that that all too often the gospel is boiled down to just some pithy sayings that really don't amount to anything. People say the gospel is that God loves you. The gospel is that God has a plan for your life. The gospel is that you can get to heaven. The gospel is that God wants you to have a happy, better life. Well, friends, I want to tell you that those things are not the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took on flesh, came to this earth to live a perfect life that you and I cannot live on our own, and that he died to bear the punishment for our sins, was buried, was raised again three days later, now sits at the right hand of God, that we who repent and believe on him may have our sins forgiven and be with him forever. That is the gospel. And so we need to be in prayer that those who proclaim the gospel, us as we proclaim the gospel, others as they go out to proclaim the gospel, that they will do so accurately and boldly proclaiming the truth of the gospel, not giving in to this tendency to make the gospel some wishy-washy American dream or whatever it might be that is done rightly and accurately. So we need to be devoted to prayer And we need to pray in this kind of way. When it comes to thinking about the gospel going forth, we need to pray this kind of way. And so now I want to bring all this back to us right now at Grace Baptist Church. Us here today. Something I've said before, and I believe the New Testament teaches very clearly, is that we are in a war. We are in a war that's not a physical war, but is a spiritual war against the forces of darkness in which Satan is actively at work seeking to minimize the spread of the gospel 
and to minimize the effectiveness of the church as we work. Right now in, in our county, there are thousands of people who are living in darkness and unbelief in Christ. In our country, tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people in unbelief. Right now in the world, there are at the very least 4.5 billion people who are not followers of Christ. There are over a billion people who have never even heard the name of Christ. And Satan desperately, desperately wants to ensure that the church is engaged in everything else but praying for the gospel's advance. We are in a war and our means of communication with our commander, with our king, is prayer. So my, my thinking as, as I've looked at this and I think about how I see church in America today, this is, this is what I wonder. Is, is it possible, is it possible that we in America today have lost our sense of what we might call, call a wartime mentality when it comes to prayer? Is it possible that, that at times, or maybe all too often, our prayers become just routine mouthing of words? Is it possible that our prayers are too often inwardly focused and, and too seldom outwardly focused on the proclamation of the gospel? Is it possible, as we look at our, the state of the church in our world today, in America today, is it possible that, that we have relied more on programs and gimmicks and, and how we you know, can say the gospel in some kind of fancy way more on those kind of tools rather than we have on prayer being the fuel that drives the gospel's advance. Is it possible that we have relied on those things more than we have actually on prayer and actually the proclamation of the gospel? And so I pray that we will return, that we'll return to what we see in the early church, that they were constantly, that they were together in prayer and that they were devoting themselves to prayer. And so that's what I want us to do this morning for just a few minutes, is to pray. I think, I think Judy's going to come up right now, and she's just going to play softly, and, and I want us just to pray. So I want to ask you just to close your eyes for, for just a few minutes. This week, we have two teams that are going out. We have a team in Peru that's already there right now, and they're going to be taking the gospel to the people there. And we also have a team that's going to be leaving... Uh, tomorrow uh, to do some construction work um, but that they will also have the opportunity for proclaiming the gospel and so I want to I want to lead you in, in just a little time of prayer and so for our team that's leaving tomorrow I want you to pray for a moment that God will grant them open doors for the gospel their primary goal is is construction and, and ministry to the folks there, but pray that through that, God will open doors for the gospel. So pray for that for a moment. I want you to pray also for them that they'll have boldness, that they will not be timid when it comes to the gospel, that they will be accurate and clear as they proclaim it, as God gives them opportunity.
We also have a team that's in Peru right now. Part of what they're doing is eye clinics for the people there in the Chancay River Valley. Pray that God will open doors for the gospel through those eye clinics. That through the people they talk to, through the, the work that Mark does and the nurse does, that they will have an opportunity to proclaim the gospel to those people and that God will pave the way for them to hear and to trust in Christ. Since we started there two years ago, we have encountered several believers, and many people have come to trust in Christ for salvation. So right now, I want you to pray for the believers who are there to boldly and clearly share the gospel to those around them. Pray that those people living there in the Chonkai River Valley will do that. God, we pray that you will pave the way for the gospel. God, that you will do things that can only be explained by you, that do things that can only occur by you in the opening of eyes, the opening of hearts. God, I pray that you will call people into salvation through these teams that go, that you will lay the foundation of the gospel in the people's lives and that they will hear and that they will trust and they will come to know you. God, that that you will work a harvest through these teams. God, I pray that they will boldly proclaim the gospel, that you'll give them opportunities maybe that they hadn't even expected. May this be opportunity for your gospel to go forth in power. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to ask the musicians to come forward at this.